Blog Talk Radio. joining us again today. Oh, today we will be continuing the way we do every single week with themes that are truly important to all of us, to humanity, to the earth herself, in respect to our health, our wellness, and our sustainability. I don't have to tell you all that we are dealing with a crisis unparalleled in known, recorded, and even human history, where we are challenging our Earth's resources and our climate like never before, what with greenhouse gases, CO2 emissions, carbon monoxide emissions, and the whole gamut. We don't even want to think about it anymore. It's too discouraging, it's too deeply disturbing that human beings are, how do I put it, soiling our own nest. And here at A Better World, it is our job, it is our calling to bring attention to those matters in our world which is making it bitter instead of better, to point out those weak links in human consciousness, human attitudes, and human behavior that are fouling the nest, that are raining on the parade of the larger picture of our civilization and our humanity. And we've been able to identify a series of items, of issues, that are helping, contributing seriously to doing that. One of them is our relationship to our environment, our relationship to the earth herself, and the way we express our behavior and our attitudes toward her as some big body, a reservoir to be tapped into, to be exploited to the full without taking responsibility is exactly one of humanity's weak links and actually for a long, long time. But when you add up a long, long time, it turns into an accumulative effect, which we currently are now experiencing the consequences of. So on A Better World and at our website, abetterworld.tv, we do seek to deal with these matters, to address them head on 
in a thoughtful, contemplative, serious way so we can then find solutions that we can all collectively participate in, in some way or another, to turn our situation around, preserve our species, preserve other species, and literally protect our Earth from our own weak links, you could say. To help us with this endeavor tonight, I have invited on a very special gentleman who has been on this pioneering path for decades. His name is Jerome Ringo, who formed a company called Eco Opportunity Advisors just last year. But before that, Dr. Ringo, Mr. Ringo, although he really deserves to be called a doctor at this point in his illustrious career, has been a pioneering leader in the environmental movement. In response to the world's worsening environmental conditions, he campaigned for environmental justice and effectively altered how people live and the way businesses work around the world. He is literally busy for, you know, 12 to 16 hours a day, almost seven days a week. I really tip my hat to him and his commitment to helping humanity through this incredibly rough patch. Now, a little bit more of his biography. For over 20 years, Jerome has taken his message to various forums from global lectures and business meetings to assorted lobbying groups, governmental officials, and nonprofits, all the while relentlessly advocating for policies that protect the environment, stimulate the economy, and help to eliminate the world's addiction to fossil fuels. Mr. Ringo, interestingly, is the first African-American to head the National Wildlife Federation Board of Directors. As former president of the Apollo Alliance, he has helped to build a coalition of over 17 million members while heading the alliance. In a practical way, Jerome Ringo has been acting on behalf of the United States government during the last several administrations. For instance, he was a delegate for the United States to the 1998 Global Warming Treaty negotiations in Kyoto, Japan, under President Clinton, and represented the National Wildlife Federation at the COP15 talks in Copenhagen, Denmark. In 1999, Jerome served as a representative at the UN Conference on Sustainable Development. He, in 2006, was made a McCloskey Fellow and Associate Research Scholar at Yale University School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and in 2008 was a visiting lecturer at the University of California, Santa Barbara's Bren School of the Environment. It goes on and on. His credentials are long, lengthy, and very, very interesting because he keeps manifesting in a way to be an advocate of the environment and to protect it from what I was describing before as essentially the dark side, the undeveloped, the immature side of humanity. So it's really with a warm welcome and a great pleasure and honor to welcome Jerome Ringo to A Better World. Jerome, thanks so much for being on the show today. 
And thank you so very much, Mitchell, uh, for inviting me, and uh, congratulations to you for such a wonderful and a very important show. Well, thank you. Thank you. I so appreciate that from you. I'd like to pick up on uh, what you have been focusing on most lately in light of the research that you continue to do on looking at matters of global warming, looking at matters of water, air, and soil pollution. You've played such an instrumental role politically and economically in the world from an environmentalist's point of view, but now even from a green business point of view. I, I love that you are creating a emerging, if you will, of the green movement with good business. And I, I myself have been on that path, as you know, for many years. And it's always so wonderful to see someone of your caliber and background doing this kind of work. Tell us a little bit about the work of Eco Opportunity Advisors at this point. Well, with the multiple global challenges that we're facing today, uh, many of which are, are that include the environmental challenges and issues we face uh, impacted by global warming, uh, with the economic challenges we face, with the global economic issues that uh, we're experiencing from country to country. I really felt that it was important that we sort of come up with a fix-all solution or a solution that was more multidimensional than, than just one-dimensional. Uh, my yes. background in the environmental movement, of course, as an advocate and working on policy changes was critically important, but we could not deal with environmental issues without facing the obvious uh, economic issues and economic concerns that uh, we were experiencing throughout the world and came to the realization that one very much impacted the other. Uh, yes. Poor countries were being impacted disproportionately with respect to, to environmental practices. Uh, the economies of, of countries were in such disarray that it disallowed them an opportunity to deal with their environmental issues, uh, their, their garbage disposal, waste disposal issues, their CO2 reduction issues. It's very difficult to deal with those issues if you have no money. So it, it was critically important that we uh, deal with the environment, deal with the economic woes uh, all simultaneously. So I, I created Eco Opportunity Advisors uh, with the intent of being the glue that connects the dots. Engaging yes, I love that. Research. You know, if I may say, there's this idea in business, traditional thinking business, that uh, being eco-sensitive, Jerome, is somehow antithetical to good business practice and profitability. And for the longest time, I've got to say that almost since I was a teenager, I argued just the opposite. You know, politically, I could be considered anywhere from a liberal to a progressive, maybe even to a radical. But I'll tell you, in reality, I'm a great conservative, meaning that I love to conserve our planet and good common sense. And good common sense is to have a long-term environmentally sensitive view, which means do things right today so you don't get walloped with 
um, environmental impact studies, with penalties, with fines, with possibly criminal misconduct, God forbid, and um, the need, the demand, legal or ethical uh, or social, to clean up the air or the water or the soil that one has lazily engaged in over time, seeking to create short-term profitability. Well, and we had to recognize that there, uh, we needed a balance. We needed to recognize the importance of keeping the planet clean, but at the same time not at the cost of creating a, a atmosphere of, of a uh, floundering economy or contribute to the atmosphere of a floundering economy. That yes. was the, the belief that uh, strong environmental issues meant a loss of jobs. And uh, that's changed because now strong environmental protection and people that are advocating for the environment can create jobs, green jobs. Exactly, exactly. Especially when we're living in a time when there's such a high issue of energy independence now is is critical to us. We are addicted to foreign oil. Uh, We are being held over an oil barrel by many countries that we import oil from who don't like us. We import yes. 70% of our fossil fuel. Well, we did uh, some years ago, and that's now beginning to change. But at one point, we were importing 70% of our fossil fuel from other countries. While in America, as we imported uh, energy, we were exporting jobs. So now we have an opportunity to uh, create and diversify our energy portfolio while at the same time stimulating our economy by creating American jobs that can meet the energy demands, uh, the growing energy demands that we face today. Yes, indeed. You know, it's interesting. You're bringing forward in my mind by association your good friend and colleague, Van Jones, who I understood from you, you had recommended to the Obama White House to be the green energy czar after you decided to pass on the offer. (laughs) So interesting. And, of course, Van wrote the book on the green collar economy. And I have come to learn through getting to know you that that was um, an idea that the both of you have championed over time and developed over time. And you have done such notable work across the world and on behalf of government and business, as well as for the environmental movement itself, but also for Robert Redford in being the host and the narrator for a series of environmentally oriented um, films that were shown at at the Sundance Festival. Could you talk a little bit about what you've done in that regard? Well, Van Jones is a pioneer, and Van Jones had and still has uh, a huge amount of support out there. Van Jones was the right person to be the Green Czar for the White House because Van Jones not only uh, talks the talk, but he walks the walk. And in yeah. recreating the Ella Baker Center in Oakland, California, and, and Green for All, Van Jones was able to lead a uh, to open the pathway for green jobs training, especially in those communities that suffered uh, uh, impacts uh, disproportionately with respect to the economy. So Van has been a pioneer. He has uh, forged a trail that many can follow 
that even in many respects I have followed. I, I truly admire uh, Van Jones for what he has done and what he continues to do. Uh, and again, yeah. Robert Redford. We've got some pioneers in the country now uh, today that are working to improve the environment, the Robert Redfords, the Al Gores. Uh, those are people who get it, who at one point in their lives or some point in their lives, the, there were large populace of the uh, of American people that didn't believe in them, did not believe that they, what they were saying until we began to experience the impacts of climate change firsthand. Uh, when Al Gore was speaking about climate change many, many years ago, uh, there were many in Congress who laughed at him. There were many in Congress who thought that the guy was out of his mind. And now we've exper experienced climate refugees uh, along yeah. the Gulf Coast and, of course, along the East Coast as a result of Hurricane Sandy. Surely climate change did not cause those storms, but climate change in a big way contributed to the intensity of those storms, which created uh, hardships for many, many, many thousands of people along the Jersey shores uh, and, and Long Island. Uh, so we are now experiencing what uh, Al Gore predict, predicted many, many years ago. Uh, we are now experiencing what Van Jones and myself and a few others in the movement predicted many, many years ago. And we, have, the majority of the American people now understand that, yes, it is a problem. The global warming debate is over. There is no sense in debating whether it's real or not. Now we must get into the solution, and that's part of why we form Equal Opportunity Advisors to address yes. the solution. How do we reduce CO2 to the atmosphere while at the same time stimulating the American economy with good jobs? Yes. Bless you. I would like to ask a controversial question. Uh, I don't want to say devil's advocate, but this is something that always comes up in these conversations, um, even without being part of the religious right or being a Christian fundamentalist in Congress. And that is even a number of notable scientists, some of whom I've actually had on the show, in order to bring an uh, air out uh, – a number of different points of view have said that a lot of the climate issues that we are experiencing now, while maybe in some measure are um, anthropocentric, or I should say anthropogenic, uh, are also really largely a result of natural cycles of our own Earth. And there is fairly ample evidence that that bears that out. What will you and what do you say to those scientists who put forth? I'm, I'm, I'm saying that without a political sure. agenda at all. Sure. I, I think cycles are real. But let's be realistic. We are now putting more CO2 to, into the atmosphere than we have in the history of the planet. And we do recognize that the levels of CO2 to the atmosphere uh, uh, and the warming of the planet has a direct relationship uh, uh, one to another. As the CO2 has increased since the mid-1940s, when America really began to industrialize, we have seen a rise in the Earth's temperature. Parallel, um, you know, Kilimanjaro's ice cap has melted for the first time in 10,000 years. 
We'll see yeah. the meltdown of the permafrost in Alaska and the Arctic region for the first time in, in many, many, many years, decades, centuries. We are now uh, seeing catastrophic storms. I live in Louisiana. I'm an evacuee of Hurricane Rita, Hurricane Gustav, Hurricane Ike, Hurricane Wilma, uh, and, and Hurricane oh. Katrina. So all in 2005, 2006. At the same time, we were experiencing the hottest years in recorded history between 2001 and 2011. 2005 was when the storms hit, and now 2008 has broken the record of 2005 as the hottest summer in recorded history. And now we have Hurricane uh, 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 the, the hurricane on the, on the East Coast. And so it, it's all in parallel. So surely we can, uh, as a part of argument, say that cycles are the, an issue, but we surely cannot deny the fact that as the CO2 increases in the atmosphere, as China continues to bring online a power plant every week, as the United States continues to, as we you know, make up 5% of the world's population, we discharge 35% of the CO2 to the atmosphere, we use 25% of the energy in the world that has to have an adverse impact all over the world globally, especially on poorer countries that are not as developed as we are. So it's not a coincidence. It's not by chance. Now, those scientists that say uh, that it is a cycle, I do want to add are in the minority. The, ma- the majority of scientists believe that climate change is real. We will never get 100% support on anything when it comes to science. You know, yeah. uh, Mitchell, there, there are still people who believe that man didn't land on the moon. They think it was a movie shot in the desert of Arizona. Well, <laughs> you know, God bless them. But the reality is is we're dealing with climate issues. They're very, very real. Ask the people in New Orleans. Ask the people on the Jersey Shore. Ask the Gritchin tribe of the Arctic Circle in in Arctic Village who are moving their villages for the first time in hundreds of years because the permafrost are melting. Look at the drowning polar bears because the ice regions are now melting. Look at the salinity of the oceans that are being impacted by the meltdowns of, of the glaciers. Look at the people in northern China that are suffering because they get 40% of their drinking water from the glaciers. The glaciers are disappearing. We're about to have an international water crisis. So the evidence is clearly there. We just need yeah. to come to the reality that we've got to come up with meaningful solutions that we can all be a part of to fix what has been broken. Yes, I very well put, very well stated. And it's true, there are many people who are uh, deaf, dumb, and blind when it comes to these things for any number of rather spooky reasons, actually. Um, so my issue wasn't so much whether it exists, but rather what the causes are. But as you eloquently put it, uh, human beings are discharging more CO2, and I would like to say a host of other toxins into the atmosphere, into the water, into the soil, which form a confluence of ill effect, of toxic effect. In fact, our oceans are becoming uh, a bizarre, and our waterways all throughout our lakes and rivers in the United States and elsewhere, a synthesis of chemical explosions having to do with pharmaceutical 
discharge combined with the results of chemical processes of every single size and dimension, we are, we are brewing a kind of a strange brew, as Fresh Cream called it many years ago, um, that we know nothing about. It's scary. And uh, you cannot soil, no pun intended, our earth in such a way and so-called not have consequences. Not You cannot get away with it. So your your point is well made, and I very much appreciate it. There are climate refugees all over. Look at what happened in the South Pacific with um, the uh, the president of that of uh, was it Fiji who had in his part of his military operations was how to shore up the island in the event of being virtually capsized. And then he got ran out of off he got ran out of office. I mean. Scarily enough, that's a that's a whole other matter. But your perspective on bringing forward um, genuine solutions that are oftentimes technological in nature, I think, is one of the real concrete ways that we're going to, as a society, move out of this conundrum, this very serious one at that. So. Please know I very much appreciate it. I wanted to bring up the not the question of whether climate change exists, rather uh, what its causes are. And I say to people, Jerome, no matter what, the part of the whole game that human beings have been charged with stewarding, we have let that go and we have helped to precipitate a tipping the tipping point, even if 80% or 90% of what is going on is part of a natural cycle, that part with which we have been entrusted with our brain and with our sense of consciousness, we blow that, which we have been doing. That sets the whole thing up and off to a premature level of cyclical climate disaster. And I think that that's what we're facing. Your thoughts? Well, I, I, I think that you are correct. We are past that point of no return in that right now it's impossible for us to fix what has been broken. I think yeah. uh, it is incumbent upon us to try to minimize the impact of the future that might impact the next generation and even more so those generations that are yet unborn. When you yes. look at the coast of Louisiana where I live, uh, because of the poor environmental practices, because of the levee systems and many mistakes made by our U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, uh, we now uh, lose an acre of land every 42 minutes to erosion in Louisiana. That is oh, a result my God. Of, oh, yeah. We've lost enough land to equal the, the state of Delaware. That is uh, due to channeling of the waterways by oil and gas companies as they drill. Uh, the other problem has been that the levee system that was built to protect cities like New Orleans created a funnel effect, and the billions of pounds of sediment that make its way down the Mississippi River that once would recharge the coastline, because of the funnel effect of the levee system, all of the, the sediment is dumped into an area 
off the coast of Louisiana has created a dead zone because much of the sediment that travels down the Mississippi River is contaminated with pesticides from the agriculture industry. And and add to that fact that the Deepwater Horizon spill took place in that dead zone. So it added to the stress of of killing critical habitat for for, uh, the fishing industry, which put a lot of people out of business. The fishermen could not fish. The restaurants had, uh, could not buy fish because the, 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 the uh, fishermen could not deliver. Therefore, the restaurants had to raise their prices. Uh, hotels started losing money, uh, and, and, and businesses started losing money. People started uh, becoming, uh, you know, were being laid off. Uh, the trucking industry was affected. There was no seafood out there caught because of the contamination, so the truckers had no seafood to deliver. So the truckers were put out of business, and that was a major residual effect by virtue of poor environmental practices that has impacted the economic ladder for years to come in Louisiana and potentially throughout the country. So it's not just an air impact of CO2 to the atmosphere. It's poor environmental practices across the board. Now, I'm not advocating that we be anti-oil and gas. What I am advocating is that we diversify our energy portfolio to where we're not solely dependent on oil and gas. We're not going to resolve the climate issue. We're not going to resolve the economic issue by drill, baby, drill. We've got to diversify our portfolio to where we consider wind and solar and hybrid cars and biofuels to where we have a very diverse energy portfolio that can meet the needs and the demands and the energy demands of the American people and internationally. Beautiful. You're, you're winning my vote, Jerome. You're winning my vote. I don't know what you're going to be running for, but I'm interested in knowing. We <laughs> are spending the hour with Jerome Ringo, who is an environmentalist through and through and entrepreneur, has been – occupying a most interesting role. I'm going to get into some of his past and how he came to be doing what he's doing in just a moment. I want to let you all know you are listening to A Better World with your host, Mitchell J. Rabin. I'm so glad you're joining us. I love that you join us every single week. I just love it because every week, as you know, we seek to take on the issues, the conflicts, the themes that will do something to create a better world for all beings, all sentient life. We respect, we honor, and we uphold. So this is the place, and we look at the macro picture, and we look at the micro picture, from personal and intimate relationships to communications between people, all the way to looking at the larger geological and environmental picture, if you will, of the entire planet and even beyond. So I'm so glad you're joining us. And please, if you haven't been on our website, go visit at www.abetterworld.tv. Sign up for our free newsletter where we announce both our weekly radio and TV show. And we'd love you to be part of A Better World's community, which is growing across the world. We have people all over and China, Japan, Russia, all over Europe, even Bali. We have people listening to our show and paying attention and writing in, and it's just 
a real warm feeling to know that all of us are together thinking about, considering, and resonating with these ideas so we can all play our unique respective role in cleaning up the mess and getting on with a sustainable society. So, uh, with that said, I want to just remind you all that we are speaking with Jerome Ringo for the hour about the subject of the environment and solutions, both, you could say, the diagnosis and the remedy. Now, Jerome Ringo is a very interesting gentleman. He was in the Academy Award-winning documentary, uh, produced and directed by Al Gore, An An Inconvenient Truth. He has also co-authored Diversity in the Future of the U.S. Environmental Movement, published in 2007, and The Green Festival Reader in 2008. He continues to actively testify on numerous environmental justice issues within the United States Congress, House, and Senate for Green Clean Development and Accountability Matters. He has been wired into the Obama White House, the Clinton White House, I don't know what happened in the Bush White House, but certainly Jerome Ringo has been up there dealing with heads of state, prime ministers all over the world to educate them about the importance of green thinking and building green, sustainable economies using renewable resources. So, Jerome, again, I've got to just tell you, my friend, it's a pleasure to have you on A Better World today. Thank you, Mitchell. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Now, I'm so glad. Now, you got into this. It's interesting because as an Afro-American, this, for whatever reason, this is your planet. It's my planet. It doesn't matter what size, shape, color, creed, or anything else. We're all humans. But there has not been much of a participation in the environmental movement by Afro-Americans. I mean, no doubt over the course of decades um, as a group, you have had other issues to grapple with, God knows. Um, But tell us the story, if you would, growing up in Louisiana, how it is you came about this career that you've embarked upon. Well, I spent the first 20 years of my career actually working in the petrochemical refining industry. Uh, You know, here in Louisiana, oil and gas is king. Uh, 33% of the the domestic oil supply comes off the shore of Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico. And so the largest employer in the state uh, is the oil and gas industry. So I did that for 20 years. I spent the last five years of my career working overseas in Malaysia for the oil and gas industry. Uh, And so I gained a, a vast amount of experience and understanding to the inner workings of the industry. In 1994, uh, I left the industry, was very concerned about the adverse impact of the petrochemical industry on people on the other side of the fence, those people that lived in closest proximity to petrochemical refining industries. And more times than not, the people that lived on the other side of the fence of those industries were poor and people of color. Uh, I decided to join the Louisiana Wildlife Federation, which was the largest environmental organization in the state. I had no idea when I joined that organization that it's 24,000 members that I was the only black member. (laughs) It it, it was shocking to me. 
especially recognizing that the people that suffered the greatest environmental impact were poor people and people of color. My question was, why weren't they involved? And as I traveled around the country, I came to the realization that the lack of diversity in the green movement existed not just in Louisiana, but throughout the country. But I did have an opportunity to visit the Texas-Mexican border where the people that suffered the greatest impact were poor and brown. And I had a chance to visit inner-city America, the urban communities, Chicago, south-central L.A., uh, Harlem, New York, where the people that suffered the greatest environmental impact were poor and black. But then I went to West Virginia. I went to coal mining country where I saw firsthand that the people that were impacted adversely were poor and white. So I came to the realization that though race was a factor, it was more of an economic issue than a race issue. People yeah. were adversely affected because of their of, of poverty levels. Uh, they were adversely affected. So I decided to operate or, or attempt to engage on a larger scale I was asked to run for the Board of Directors of the National Wildlife Federation, of which I did, remained on that board for 15 years. My personal goal was to help the environmental movement look like America, which it did Mm. not. I I oftentimes wondered why were people of color not involved. I had an interesting conversation with with a person who is a dear friend of mine today, uh, Teddy Roosevelt IV. And Teddy's grandfather, great-grandfather, was President Teddy Roosevelt, who founded the National Wildlife Federation. I came to the realization in conversation that the uh, environmentalists of that day were sportsmen in the 30s, the 40s. They were sportsmen. They were hunters and fishermen. But they were the folks that would hunt, they would fish, and they would hang the trophy on the wall. People that were hunting and fishing for food would hang that trophy on the plate. So, therefore, the the movement evolved as a predominantly white male elite movement. And over the years, poor people and people of color were more concerned about next month's rent than depletion of the ozone layer. So I I set out to, to educate people of color and poor people on why they should be involved in environmental issues that environmental issues were just as important as next month's rent. I mean, what good was next month's rent if you're dying of cancer as a result of living next to the petrochemical facility in your neighborhood? Came to the realization that two out of three African-Americans live within the same zip code of a landfill. But if you go Mm. into any community, if you want to find a poor neighborhood, you find a railroad track. If you want to find a sewage treatment plant, you find a poor neighborhood. And so, therefore, there is a disproportionate impact, but there is a real need for those people that are adversely impacted to be a part of the solution by becoming advocates uh, to the environmental issues of which we are concerned. We have seen over the years an increase in number of African Americans and people of color uh, in the movement. The mm-hmm. The top voting record and most consistent voting record on environmental issues in the U.S. Congress is the Congressional Black Caucus. They consistently vote. Oh, absolutely. They consistently vote very positively for environmental regulations because they represent a constituency of people that is the most impacted. 
Uh, We're not where we want to be. I was the first African-American not just to head the National Wildlife Federation, but to head a major conservation organization in this country. To date, I am still the only African-American that has headed a major conservation organization in this country. So though we have come a long way, we still have a long way to go. So my work will continue. Uh, we still got a lot of work to do, and I think that the strength in the success of the environmental movement will lie in the engagement of people from all walks of life. Yes, well put. I think you're very, very right, very right. And I just want to commend you for stepping up into a space that had not been occupied by an Afro-American until you, and you didn't let anything get in your way. And I want to also, you know, commend the National Wildlife Federation for being open and recognizing your true value and intelligence and uh, leadership spirit, which is obviously why they wanted you to be a major, major contributor and participant there. You know, the more I get to know you, Jerome, the more I think that you are some kind of really interesting mix between Martin Luther King and Erin Brockovich. (laughs) Well, that's very kind of you, and I think there are, you know, I'm, I'm surely not a Dr. King, but I think we all have our, our roles to play, uh, each of us, uh, not just myself, but there are many Dr. Kings and many Aaron Brockovich's out there. We just need yes. to continue to educate people so that we can reactivate activism in the hearts of, yes. of Americans from all walks of life. Exactly, exactly. Well put. I mean, as I remember you first telling me the story of when you realized that your industry, the petrochemical industry, back then were uh, contributing majorly to rising uh, cancer rates in the black and and the poor communities of your area in Louisiana, it it broke your heart, just like when Erin Brockovich realized that, and this is kind of why I'm saying what I'm saying, lightly but poignantly, Erin uh, Brockovich realized what was going on with those chemicals in the water supply around her area. And if I may say, uh, it is said that uh, King antagonized the powers that be then, Um, not because of the racial issues at hand, but because he recognized the larger context in which rich and poor was the central issue of America. It was not black and white. And I think that the success of the civil rights movement, which I think parallels a successful green movement. Does that that resonate with what you understand as well? Absolutely, and I think that, yeah. that, that, that they're very, very similar in that it, it, the success of each movement was based on the involvement of a, a very diverse core of people. Uh, you know, that was civil rights issues long before Dr. King ever came on the scene. What made Dr. Yeah. King such a success was that he was able to turn the civil rights issues into a civil rights movement. And he was able to turn it into a movement by engaging people from all walks of life around a common issue. When you look at the Bloody Sunday, the march from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama, when uh, then-Governor Wallace ordered the uh, Alabama National Guard to put fire hoses on the people as they crossed the Pettus Bridge in Selma, 
Um, You look at the marchers in photographs from that movement, uh, from that day, and many, many of those marchers were not African American. They were white. That's right. They were women. They were uh, uh, people from all walks of life. That's that's how I judge the success of Dr. King. He was able to bring strange bedfellows to the table. People That's who left right. their differences outside the door, wrapped themselves around a common issue, and turned a battle into a movement. That is the success and will be the success of the Green Movement. When we can engage business and industry, the faith community, the education community, blacks, whites, Latinos, Hispanics, uh, Asians, people from all walks of life to engage the whole idea of we have a moral responsibility to save the planet for those generations that are yet unborn. That's so true. That's so true. And in other words, what we're talking about here has got nothing to do with ethnicity. This has to do with life itself and its sustenance or its destruction. That's the precipice on which All life forms sit, and it's painful to sit on that fence because either we're going to do things in the right way that will create that sustainability or we will continue on the track that we have been on where profit is, short-term profit, I should say, is king, and the rest just will go whatever way it goes. This is, to me, we're dealing with educational issues, and we're dealing also with, if I may say, psychopathological issues that are at the heads of industry and government. Which brings me around, actually, to my next question for you, Jerome, which is, you are in this unique position of being called up by Congress, both the House and the Senate, to testify on matters involving environmental issues, green issues, economic issues related to these, and the like. What is it like to actually be in these houses in these chambers and facing the decision makers in a rather intimate context and speaking both factually and from your heart about what matters to you how much do you feel they are really hearing you and digesting what you have to say well i think policy and how we arrive at policies in today's Congress is very much different from the way it was done, say, a decade or two ago. Um, we are now a, a country that uh, drives policy not from the top down but the bottom up. Uh, mm. Local advocacy drives local policy. Local policy advocacy drives state policy. State policy advocacy drives federal policy. And so, and if federal policy is not uh, adjusted accordingly, somebody on Capitol Hill is going to get voted out of office. So, therefore, I feel a level of being empowered when I represent the last of the least, those that are the poorest, those that are the disenfranchised, those that are the uneducated, those are the people who have a vote who, when they exercise that vote, can drive federal policy and be heard in a way like we never have before. 
that was a time that whatever the government said, that was the decision and that was that. But now we can drive it from the bottom up, and, and that's where the empowerment comes in. So I think it's I have to give uh, you know hats off to those members of Congress who recognize that the they, they do not represent any one class of people, but they represent Americans. I like what President Obama said after his uh, election back in 2008. He said, I am not uh, a, the, the president of black America. I'm the president of America. I'm the president yeah. of not red and blue, but red, white, and blue. And so yeah. we have to approach nice. it from that perspective that this is a humanity, humanity issue. It, it is a moral obligation to do what is in the best interest of our families, of our children, of our community, of our state, of our nation. And I think that when I go before Congress, I go before Congress representing those that have not been representing with the sole intent of having a, a major impact on policy decisions. Yes, yes. Very interesting. I, you know, I was just interested in, you know, the voting record aside, you could say, human being to human being, because these men and women have such power, and uh, I've unprecedented in some ways. They're also influenced by lobbyists, of course we know, as well as, of course, their, their local constituents, as you were making that case. They're also influenced by ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is working on state and federal levels, probably also county levels, to influence policy there. And it, of course, um, consists of the largest corporations in the country, which means the world, and they are essentially buying politicians left, right, and sideways, literally buying them. It's one of the saddest mechanisms that's in place, most likely wholly illegal, but that doesn't stop it from happening. But you're saying that even notwithstanding these powerful lobbying forces, these Congress people, especially the Black Caucus, interestingly, are really tuned in and listening to the messages that you have to share. And there is power in the voice of the American people. That was proven in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected president. Let's Very be true. totally totally realistic. There were those powers in place with a lot of money that represented major corporations that if it were up to many of the lobbyists on Capitol Hill, Barack Obama would not have been elected. It was the American people who said we will be heard, we will be represented, our votes will count. And they collectively came together and elected a non-traditional president. Uh, and yeah. I'm not saying that just as an advocate of Barack Obama, what I'm, and, and, and I believe very much in the president, but... It is being an advocate of the voice of the American people and the power of the voice of the American people. And I believe now that if we can ever remove the division, and I think that division is going away, of the rich versus the poor, uh, we saw a lot of that in the last election, I think if we can erase some of the lines that separate one from another, if we can erase the lines that separate industry from the environment, no more jobs versus the environment. How about jobs for the environment? 
Let us erase some of the barriers that separate us, and let's come together with one common goal in mind. Because at the end of the day, those CEOs that represent the ExxonMobil's, the BPs, and what have you, they have children too. Their grandchildren will breathe the same air and drink the same water as my grandchildren. So at the end of the day, the moral responsibility of the CEO of British Petroleum is no different than the moral responsibility of Jerome Ringo or the poorest in America. We all bear that responsibility, and we all should bear the commitment to, to give ourselves our energy and our passion to fix the planet for the next generation. Very true. Very true. Let's turn our attention for a moment to BP. And uh, we call it a spill. What a euphemism, if I ever heard one. But since that's your neighborhood, Louisiana is your home state. What is the story about BP currently and the cleanup? There was a great film I saw about this uh, uh, some months back. And basically it was saying, Jerome, that the cleanup is a fraction of what it needs to be. Uh, that the economic payoffs made by BP are a fraction of what they should be, and that there's a huge uh, PR campaign that makes it appear to be one thing when it's really quite another, from the seafood to the restaurants to the tourism to the health of the, of the fish to the health of the environment. What are your thoughts on this? The adverse impact of the Deepwater Horizon spill will be felt for generations to come. The impacts on the fisheries of Louisiana will be felt for generations to come. Much of the damage of the uh, already very delicate coastline of Louisiana will not be fixed in our lifetime or the lifetimes of our children. You simply can't fix the damage. You've got tar tar balls that are on the bottom of the surface. You've got contamination in fish that are migrating to other parts of the Gulf of Mexico. Now you're seeing contaminated fish as far over as eastern or western Louisiana, eastern Texas. Uh, You uh, you have fishermen who have who were put out of business who have not yet settled with BP who may not recover. Uh, it, the, the impact is just is just tremendous. But my biggest concern is: is it a truly a lesson learned? Uh, we we the spill took place. The president ordered a moratorium on deep water drilling. You had representatives of, in Congress in Louisiana who attacked the president because of that moratorium, which I believe the president was correct. We needed to figure out what the problem was before we issued mm-hmm. more, more permits to drill. Mm-hmm. We needed to fix the government's role in this, the Mineral, mineral Management, MMS, that was a govern, governing agency overlooked, overseeing the oil companies, were pretty much in bed with the oil companies. That was unfortunate. Now the, a new agency has been put in place that is a watchdog, and I think they're doing a great job. Uh, we have, we came to the realization that, and we should come to the realization, that drill, baby, drill is not going to fix our energy problems. 
um, you know, reducing our dependency on Saudi Arabian oil and 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 switching our dependency to Gulf of Mexico oil is like switching seats on a Titanic. You are still distributing <laughs> CO2 really to the atmosphere at a high level. You are not impacting gas prices. You're still vulnerable to catastrophic disaster with respect to the environment. Um, you are still, you know, faced with the industrial issues of, of deep water horizons and deep water drilling. Uh, and as I said at the beginning of the show, this is not a campaign to eliminate our drilling and production of oil and gas. But surely we can reduce the impact by diversifying our, our energy portfolio, which will help us reduce the impacts of climate and also reduce the impacts of possibilities of catastrophic disasters along our coast. What do you think of the fact that the Obama administration and its Department of Justice have not brought forth one criminal case against any of the BP or their contractors um, in this whole disaster? Well, there is a criminal trial going on. There are three BP employees uh, that are facing criminal uh, conviction uh, right now. Oh, are they? Uh, is that so? Excuse me. Absolutely, and there should be more. Uh, yes. You know, right now there's a lot of finger pointing. Of course, BP is pointing the finger at Halliburton. Halliburton is pointing the finger at Cameron, and it's 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 more of a of a blame game right now. But blame yes. game is not going to save the stripping industry. Blame game is not going to restore the coastline. Blame game is not going to stimulate the Louisiana economy and the impacts of the Deepwater Horizon. Blame game is not going to mandate policies that are going to prevent disasters from happening like this in the future. We need to learn from the mistake that we've made make sure that we have policies in place that are proactive policies rather than reactive policies. We come up with all types of new agencies whenever there's a major disaster. After Katrina, we came up with all types of new policies that would protect us against storm surge and hurricanes. Why weren't these policies in place before the storm? Why weren't these policies in place before the deep water horizon? So now we've got to make sure that we never have a deep water horizon disaster again, but we also need to make sure from an environmental perspective that we never have impacts like on Lower Ninth Ward, New Orleans, as a result of Katrina, and adverse impacts impact, uh, like the people impacted by Hurricane Sandy along the Jersey Shore. Uh, the, the reaction by FEMA was a lot better for Jersey, lesson learned from New Orleans. But why don't yeah. we come up with some policies that are proactive that can eliminate the loss of life, the loss of property, and the adverse impact on our citizens? Very true. Very true. Now, because one of your main focuses is on the interface between developing a green economy and existing industry, what are, instead of just thinking that it's a nice idea, to develop a green economy, a green-based economy. What are we really looking at, Jerome, when we're thinking about unemployment and jobs creation in the green sector? Well, I think it first starts with education. 
you know, Mitchell, when we were kids, we yeah. played out, outdoors. We played yeah. out in the woods. We camped. We did all those things. Kids sure. are now disconnected from nature. So they don't really have a real understanding of the value of green. So we've got to re-educate our kids. I like what the National Wildlife Federation came out with a program called the Green Hour, which basically encouraged children to get outside for an hour a day. But now, you know, we are faced with what I've heard described as nature versus Nintendo. Our children are locked to the TVs, they're playing video games, and they're not connected to nature. They don't understand the impact of poor environmental practices uh, on on our environment. So we've got to educate. We've got to educate K through 12. But, you know, as we come up with all these new green jobs, you know, part of the $800 billion stimulus package was $110 billion set aside for green development. Well, you get to create all these green jobs. But if you don't have people properly trained to do the jobs, then you're not making much progress. So I just think it's very important that we educate, that we create a new green workforce that can do the green jobs, that can be the scientists, that can promote research and development from K through 12 and beyond. We graduate about 90,000 scientists a year from U.S. universities. In China, they graduate 300,000 scientists a year. It's not just by virtue of the difference in population. It's because China recognizes and wants to be the go-to country for green components. When we build wind turbines, China wants us to come to them. They want to be the manufacturing leader when it comes to photovoltaic material. We invented solar panels in the United States. But now 70% of the solar panel components, where we want to build a solar panel, we've got to go to Vietnam or to China. But we invented solar panels here. We import too much of the, of the technologies and too, much of, too many of the components that we need in our green economy. We need to start stimulating research and development here in the United States, educating, training our young people to, 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 to be that worker in that manufacturing plant, training people even in the prison system. Why not train many of these prisoners before they come out of prison to do the green jobs that will get them out of the revolving door of returning back to prison, reduce the recidivism rate, and they become productive citizens in our society. That's how you stimulate an economy. That's how you stimulate hope into the lives of people. And I think that the green movement is well positioned to be the, the, the catalyst that can make real, real change in the state of our, of our country. Yes, I hear you. I, I love these points. I love these points. I want to just take a moment and look over to our friends in Germany, Jerome, who beyond any other country I know uh, have succeeded, have been effective in converting from conventional use of gas, oil, coal, and and nuclear to a wind turbine, solar-based, and I believe to some extent geothermal-based energy production society. And they have, at this point, I I don't know the exact figures, but I think they're up to some 40%. I've even heard figures higher of production using these renewable natural technologies from the point of view 
of an economy the size of the United States and in terms of job creation, how would that kind of thing translate and what would it look like if it was actually here in our own United States? Mitchell, it's very interesting that you brought up Germany. Uh, over the last two years, I've probably made about ten trips there. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you're right, they get it. Yeah, they get it yeah. because one, when you look at the top, the government, the government leads by example. They've got a green party in the European Union. Surely yeah. they have comparable to our, uh, our conservative party, comparable to our liberal party, but they've got a green party. And they are a strong party within the European Union that pushes for policies that are going to both educate, protect, uh, and stimulate uh, the economies of Germany and the surrounding countries. So they lead by example. The other thing is is that through their policies, they create incentives that are going to help create green jobs. And the United States is getting there. We've got over 35 states right now that are passed renewable portfolio standards that are going to promote green energy uh, through tax breaks and incentives, so we're headed in the right direction. But having 33 to 35 states with renewable portfolio standards, where we have 50 states in this country, tells us that we still have a long way to go. Uh, And so I think that the Germans are educating people, the Germans are investing money uh, into green development and to the incentives and tax breaks programs, the Germans are promoting research and development and alternative energies, and it's become a part of their lives. We in America still do not have a mentality that is more conservation. We're just not there yet. Hopefully that will, and I believe it's beginning to change. You're now beginning to see uh, elementary schools recycling, middle schools recycling, universities recycling. So the, the awareness is beginning to grow. Are we where we want to be? No. We are a long way off from the European nations. But surely when you look at where we've come from over the last 10 years, we are not where we were, so we're making progress. Yes, I like that idea of making progress. It's really true. The thing is that, uh, you know, I'm involved deeply as well in green initiatives, Jerome, and what I have found in the years that I have been doing this from marching when I was 14 years old in Bridgeport, Connecticut in environmental demonstrations. Uh, The joke was back then that I was too young to even drive to the demonstration. My my father, God bless him, had to drive me. (laughs) But I had the placard. I had the picket sign, you know. And... um, uh, my heart was in that place. I recognized very early in my life what we were doing to the planet, and I felt like a, a, a wounded parent, if you will, um, watching the earth uh, die and wither under the foolishness and unconsciousness of its children, all of us. And um, But having embarked upon, you know, the ecological and entrepreneurial worlds, as have you, I have noticed that it's in other parts of the world that there's greater interest and sensitivity to the subjects here. That the United States is like a, 
a laggard. It just doesn't want to get the education. Now, I know that there are glaring, glaring um, uh, differences here, meaning, meaning there are those of us, such as you, myself, your colleagues, and mine, that feel so strongly about what it is we know and what we're doing. But you're you know, your um, rank-and-file American and their education, just as you said, it's, uh, so you put it beautifully, Nintendo versus nature, you know, it's so much that way. But China is exactly that rousing giant that wants to dominate the green economy, and they're smart enough to actually do it, while America slumbers. Europe has, because of their physical size has been conserving energy for ever forever size of car use of gasoline use of electricity everything is designed around conservation france italy germany spain but come to the united states and everything is big and wasteful and thoughtless and all about profit. No wonder we're suffering the way we're suffering. All of that to say, I know I'm not painting a very nice picture, but it's what I see, and I want to see a change. And I think that the work of people like yourself and your colleagues and associates and me and mine, we are making a difference, and we are rousing uh, people through education, circling back to I think that is the, really the principle here of education. Uh, your comments? Well, you know, and, and as an indie comment, I want to say that we still live in the greatest country in the world. We still yes. live in a country that is the melting pot of the world, that is a country of many ethnic uh, and, and uh, mm -hmm. diverse backgrounds, uh, people who have a voice through the great pioneers like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, and 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 the many great leaders of this country, even in our Congress, those that have stepped up to the plate and represented on behalf of uh, of, of all people from all walks of life, uh, we still are the greatest country. At the same time, it offers us the greatest opportunity uh, yes. that we should take full advantage of to fix what is broken. We have the resources to fix it. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we, we use we discharge 35 percent of the CO2 to the atmosphere, but still we have not ratified Kyoto. Still we have not come to an agreement on CO2 discharge or reduction of CO2 discharge from Copenhagen. Um, we have gotten so bottled up in bureaucracy, we've gotten so bottled up in politics that it's at the end of the day, it's going to hurt our children. And we have yeah. to, as American people, put selfishness and greed aside and do what is morally correct, do the right thing. When, when, you know, and I, a Christian, believe that when God gave us dominion over the earth, he didn't say trash it. So we right. all have a responsibility, regardless to what your religious background is or your faith background. We yeah. all can agree on one thing. We have a responsibility to fix this planet and save it. Uh, for generations to come. And so I, I want to end by saying I have the utmost confidence uh, in the American people, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that we'll do what's right. Uh, we'll do what's in the best interest of, of our families, of our communities, of our country, 
and of the world. Um, and and shows like yours, uh, Mitchell, is such a great, great uh, avenue uh, to be able to reach to the American people, to talk about the issues, to disagree or agree to disagree, but at the same time, at the end of the day, come up with a meaningful solution that can benefit us all. So I just want to applaud you for what you, the great work that you're doing. You're on the right track. You're hearing from the voice of the American people. And that's where the real solutions come from. So I applaud you, and I just thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. Oh, thank you very much, Drum. I so appreciate those words and your participation here and what you're doing on the planet overall. It's, wow, I'm so glad you have children, so we have some form of duplication here. It's uh, really (laughs) good, because... We're going to need you for a long time to come. And amen to all of your good words here in conclusion. I very much appreciate it. And uh, it ultimately really is a spiritual matter, a moral matter of doing the right thing and feeling that commitment in our heart to protecting, ultimately, what are we talking about, but protecting life itself. And uh, what could be nobler than that? in the eyes of God, however we may conceive that. So I, I want to thank you again for being a guest on our show. And believe me, I would like to have you back and do some of the roundtables we talked about with some of your colleagues, you know, Van Absolutely. Jones, Robert Redford, others who you feel are your heroes. And uh, please, please come back again. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks. You too now. That was Jerome Ringo, truly a star, and in so many ways, who is pioneering the efforts of a green education across our country, bringing his wisdom, intelligence, and heartfulness to Congress over and again. Literally, he is testifying in committees and subcommittees several times per year, giving addresses to large institutions, universities, and businesses across the world, that is. And uh, he's truly a gift to the environmental movement and to the development of a green economy. This is the kind of person we so love to highlight here on A Better World. And you will not find this kind of reportage, these kinds of interviews elsewhere. God knows you will find good ones in many places. I listen to them myself. And yet, I also know that we reach in deep to getting to the core issues with our phenomenal guests week after week. That is, if I'm not doing a show myself. And we look at the core issues involving the planet, but as well as the heart and soul of every human being. We go cross-generationally. We go cross-culturally. Everything. We're talking the language of the human here. And we so appreciate your listenership, being an audience. You are truly a participant in the entire process through the gift of your precious attention. And I just want you to know that we here at A Better World, I, as the founder and host of A Better World, truly recognize that. 
I want to let you all know that this month of March in 2013 signifies the 20th anniversary of A Better World on the Airwaves in the great city of New York. A Better World TV began in March of 1993, and we are holding a party, a gathering, and a fundraiser here in New York City um, in the next few weeks. We really encourage any of you who listen to make a donation to help us continue on to sustain us over the next year and two to continue with our work. We are so committed to creating a better world, as you can tell, if you listen to our shows with any kind of regularity, radio, TV, and we do need help with editing and camera work and the rest, production altogether. We at our website at abetterworld.tv do have a Donate Now button, and if you can come up with any kind of contribution, please know. It's used well, and we so appreciate it. Go to our website, abetterworld.tv, as well to join our family. Get on the newsletter and become informed, educated, and uplifted, and inspired. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin. Thanks again for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.